During the early morning hours of June 26, 2011, Stephen Mark McDaniel entered the apartment of Lauren Giddings. He jumped on top of her while she was in bed and strangled her to death while she begged for her life. After killing her, he would dismember her body, dispose of some parts in the law school dumpsters, and the torso in a trash can outside of his apartment complex. Several years later, he would write an allocution admitting that he was guilty. Hi, welcome to The Guilty Podcast. My name is Colin, and I'm going to be your host. I want to start off the episode with some housekeeping today. The first thing I want to do is thank everyone for their Twitter follows and all of the messages and feedback I've gotten on Twitter and in the email. The other thing I want to mention is, thanks to my great girlfriend, Jen, we now have a Facebook page as well. So you can find us at Guilty Podcast on Facebook. This will give us another way to communicate with each other. I want to discuss a little bit about how episodes are going to be labeled. Originally, when I started, I did episode one, episode two, episode three. At this time, I'm going to switch it and do episodes with parts. For example, today's episode is actually going to be episode two, part one, on Stephen Mark McDaniel. And then part two will be when we bring David on to discuss the mentality of McDaniel. Speaking of David... We have gotten him a new mic, and we're now going to work on getting the sound quality between us better. Unfortunately, he lives across the country, so we can't be in the same room, but our ultimate goal is to have it sound like we are in the same room. So that's in progress now. I would also love it if I could get some iTunes reviews. If you do find that these episodes are good and you're enjoying them, please leave a review on iTunes. And if there's something I can do better, feel free to talk to me on our new Facebook page, A Guilty Podcast. You can also reach me on Twitter at guilty underscore podcast or email me at guiltypodcast at yahoo.com. Also, if you're enjoying the podcast, I would love it if you'd share it with your friends and family and social media if they enjoy true crime podcasts. The more listeners we get, the better it is for the podcast. So I would really appreciate that. Finally, I want to discuss... The last thing, which is going to be what I call the difference between clowns and defendants. So you might notice that I call some of these people goofballs, clowns, idiots, morons, various other terms to describe stupid. I want to make it clear that once you're guilty, once you're found guilty beyond a reasonable doubt and a fair trial, I reserve the right to call you whatever. And there's no doubt that today's subject, this goofy weirdo, is one of those people. Uh, and he confessed his own guilt, so there's no question about that. However, during ongoing trials or when there's an appeals process, I will refer to people as defendants or the accused, out of respect for them. Everyone is innocent until proven guilty. But once you're proven guilty, if you're a goofball, you're a goofball. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. So, with that said, let's start with today's goofball. Let's start with the childhood, 
We've got Stephen Mark McDaniel, who was born September 9th, 1985, in Lilburn, Georgia. I'm going to tell you a little bit about some of the stuff that his mother mentioned while he was a child. I don't know that it means anything, but it's going to give us a little bit of an idea about how he was as a smaller child. So at two, he actually stuck keys inside a light sockets twice. I can imagine that this could lead to some kind of injury. He w- it was never a serious injury, but I thought I would go ahead and mention that at two, he was at least somewhat electrocuted. Uh, At four, he was labeled as Mr. Neat by his parents because he was really clean. Now, we're going to find out that that drastically shifts later in life. He was part of the church musical King Josiah at age eight, and he was part of the Atlanta Boys Choir at 13, and he sung alto. So he was more involved when he was younger. He was more social, and he seemed to be fairly well adapted. I mentioned this because at later points, he's, again, the exact opposite. When he was young, he also took an interest in music and Latin. He actually took P.E. in the summer so he could take other electives during the fall and spring. So he was a fairly educated child as well and showed a lot of interest in different types of classes than probably most of his classmates. After the 9-11 attacks... He felt scared, worried, and anxious. At this point, he would start prepping and researching for catastrophes and disasters. Again, this is going to play somewhat of a role later on in his life. He went to undergrad at Mercer and majored in business, and he would take a full class load each semester. At this point, he had no real social life. He stayed busy all the time, and when he wasn't in class, he was in his apartment. His family seemed somewhat normal but troubled. His sister was addicted to crack cocaine and, as such, had four of her six kids adopted by her mother and father. His mother and father, Mark McDaniel and Glenda McDaniel, were married for 34 years at the time that this crime took place, and they're actually still together now. They still raise their daughter's kids while their daughter has gotten better they still have custody of those kids, to my knowledge. His father, while being well-educated, was also a little eccentric. I'm going to read you a quote that he has, that he posted on his blog in 2007, that says a little bit about his personality. Quote, Why am I interesting? Well, at first glance, I appear to be a crashing bore, but looks can be deceiving. I'm a house painter, but I have more education than most doctors. I have a PhD and an eclectic taste in music, films, and books. I enjoy some samurai films, mostly the ones with less violence. Try Twilight Samurai and The Hidden Blade. My hobby is reading, so I have probably read more books than most. That's for all today. Be good. This was post one of three. After this third post, we never hear from him again. So there's nothing notable to discuss outside of those things related to his childhood or his parents. By all accounts, somewhat troubled family with his sister being the way she was, and of course, except the murder that's going to come up, but nothing that really sticks out. So during McDaniel's undergrad, he had one professor comment that he was very bright, but he never actually demonstrated his full potential. He was somewhat lazy. He was quirky, and he actually wore chainmail around campus. 
that's odd. I don't know what else to say about that, but we're going to talk about some of his roommates and what their experience was with this chainmail in just a minute. McDaniel mentioned to his classmates at this time that he wanted to commit the perfect murder, and he wanted to scatter the body parts in the woods. He thought this was the best way to get rid of the evidence. He bragged that he would never get caught, and he wanted to, quote, feel the power of having someone's life in his hands. Obviously, this is kind of a troubling thing to say or think. So it started many years before he would actually murder Giddings. Some other odd things that he did was he collected a ball of his own hair. Now, he didn't pull out his hair. He would take strands that were already falling out or loose. He would ball them up, and then he would keep them on a desk in his office. One of his friends, who declined to be identified, had found a website that showed gore videos and pictures. Now, where have we heard that before? Anyway, he wanted to show McDaniel some of these videos, but McDaniel said he didn't want to watch them and on several occasions just left the room. So he couldn't stomach these videos. That's an interesting thought considering that he was about to commit a very gruesome murder in just a few years' time. I'm going to go ahead and talk about two different roommates that McDaniel had while he was undergrad and give you an idea of what their experiences were living with him for about a year. His first roommate from 2006 to 2007 was Matthew Garrison. Now, they nicknamed McDaniel Zombie Boy based on him wearing a chainmail around and said that he was scared there would be a zombie apocalypse and McDaniel wanted to be ready for it. From all of the videos I've seen, Walking Dead, uh, what was the other, uh, 28 Days Later, all these zombie movies, my understanding is zombies will bite you anywhere. I don't know how a chainmail is going to protect you. But in any case, they did call him Zombie Boy, and the excuse was he wore that chainmail around to be prepared for some type of zombie apocalypse. This could be a sign of mental illness, I don't know, but it was a legitimate fear that he had. He had a legitimate fear of zombies, and some type of apocalypse related to them. When he was at home, there were only two people that entire year that went into his room that were invited, and they were both due to classwork. So he never had friends over, he never had a girlfriend, none of that. The only time he had people over was for actual school purposes. So much so that there was even a time when, during a house party that his roommate had thrown, a drunk female was looking to have sex with someone. She knocked on McDaniel's door, McDaniel let her in, she got in bed with him, got undressed, and put her hand down his pants. He didn't do anything. She left the room and complained to the roommate about this, saying, I can't believe he didn't do anything. So this is another odd thing. Now, I can understand if you have a moral objection to a female being intoxicated and you don't want to have sex because she can't legally consent. That's honorable. The question here is, was that McDaniel's reason for declining sex at this time? I have a hard time believing, given his, given his future, that this was the real reason he didn't do anything. In any case, it was an interesting event. So he was somewhat dirty at this point. He's the opposite of the Mr. Clean that he was labeled at four years old. He might have cleaned his room every month or two. He was very dirty, and the living room would smell because he wouldn't actually wash his dishes. He'd just let them pile up. So you can tell, this was probably not a great situation for the roommate. 
He also didn't shower frequently, and he smelled bad. Despite these, despite his smell, despite being dirty, his roommates actually didn't mind his personality too bad. They played video games together, they played Magic the Gathering together, however, when he would lose, when McDaniel would lose a game, he would often yell, scream, and kick furniture. He wouldn't attack anybody, but he, what, he didn't take losing lightly. While he roomed with Matthew, he also discussed cutting up a body, putting it in the woods somewhere, and trying to destroy evidence. He often talked about committing the perfect murder. Let's fast forward to one of the best names I've come across in true crime, which is his roommate from 2007 to 2008, named Thad Money. Money's first interaction with McDaniel was walking in on McDaniel playing a World of Warcraft-type text-based game on a computer, wearing nothing else than his chainmail. This set Money off. I mean, he went into his room and laughed for about 15 minutes at how goofy he looked. Now, McDaniel believed he was smarter than everyone else, and Money would say that that was probably true. Money had just transferred over from the Air Force Academy, so I think that you could trust that he's met many intelligent people. McDaniel's no exception. To gauge intelligence, McDaniel would ask two different questions to people. The first was, where would you go if there was a zombie invasion? He would want to know if you could figure out a place where you would not only be safe, but have a lot of access to food. I don't know why he was so obsessed with zombies, but that was the first question he'd ask. The second question, which is more telling, is if you could plan the perfect murder, how would you do it? Money had a conversation with him, just like the previous roommate and several other people that would come out later, about what would be the perfect murder. At this time, McDaniel still had the same idea. Kill the person, cut up their body, scatter the pieces. However, Money would still say that McDaniel was overall a good, supportive roommate, and they actually got along for the year that they lived together. Let's fast forward to law school. When McDaniel gets into law school, he goes to the Mercer School of Law in Georgia, which is also where he went to undergrad. He was the vice president of the Federalist Society, and he actually got to meet Justice Thomas. Giddings, the victim, was the president of the Federalist Society. I actually was the president of the Federalist Society, where I went to law school as well. So I can tell you that these two probably did work together, at least sometimes, to schedule events and coordinate what type of speakers they would have, what type of events they would run, and, you know, accepting members and appointing different positions. It kind of depends on how their constitution was structured for their group, but they probably did work together fairly often. Interestingly enough, McDaniel had ambitions to be a prosecutor, and he eventually wanted to be a Supreme Court justice. I think that applies to probably every law school student. Uh, I think every single one of them would love to be a Supreme Court justice. That's the ultimate goal. That's kind of like when you're in high school and you play football. What's your ultimate goal? To be in the NFL. And how many make it? Almost zero. So he definitely doesn't have a chance now. We know that much, but I don't think he had much of a shot to begin with anyway. When he first started law school, he sent out a hypothetical about a political situation to the entire school. I'm not going to bother you with the hypo itself, but I will say that's probably the worst way to start law school. Law school is a very competitive environment, kind of like Lord of the Flies in some ways. And I can tell you right now, 
you don't make friends by sending an email to the entire school discussing politics, let alone trying to gauge their political views to your own agenda. That's just not going to work. And it didn't work for him. If you're interested in reading those, there are some above-the-law articles that actually show the correspondence, and you can see how the other students responded. It was not well-received. At the bottom of his email, he also signed it, True-Born Son of Liberty. Now, if you don't know the Sons of Liberty, they played a role during the Revolution. They were some of the earliest people that advocated a revolution against Britain and some of the people that helped found this country. So he felt like he was a true son of liberty. So my guess is he was a libertarian, probably very extreme in his views. Not that there's anything wrong with that. This is very much like the Luca Magnata situation where there are aspects of this person's life that have little or nothing to do with their ultimate crime. I also think that in this case, his libertarian background, his views on politics have zero to do with what he eventually did. So while he was in law school, his downstairs neighbor, Evelyn Spencer, said that she could hear him running from room to room occasionally, and he had a horrible cursing habit. She said, quote, he'd be up there cursing. Go ahead, you SB. I'm guessing SB stands for son of a bitch, and she's talking about him playing a video game. Another thing, by the way, that I don't think leads to murder or has anything to do with murder. God knows I have yelled at a number of people online playing video games and probably a lot worse than saying SB, that's for sure. And I think if you've played games online, you know what I'm talking about. The more important thing is she said that she never saw any friends, men or women, visit him. Now I can tell you again from experience that law school is about networking. When you're in law school, you really have to have a network if you're going to get a job, if you're going to get internships, and really just support in your classes. Most people don't study alone, and most people have some type of social network in law school. It's very important. So for her to say that he never had anyone over and never saw him with anyone says that he was pretty much a loner. Around this time is when McDaniel starts committing burglary. Now, there's not a lot of information out there about it, but the one thing we know is he would go into apartments and he would steal single condoms. We don't know why. This is a very bizarre thing because nothing else was missing. He wasn't charged with burglary for stealing money, jewelry, TVs, video game shoes, anything that might actually have some value. He was stealing single condoms. We also know that he wasn't having sex at this time. He didn't have a girlfriend. So what was he doing? This is very odd behavior. But this is when he starts breaking into people's apartments, and my guess is he learns how to get better at it. Now, before we get to the murder, let's talk a little bit about the victim and her parents. First of all, Lauren Giddings loved her friends, her family, and her boyfriend, and her one-eyed dog, Butterbean. She was known as being very compassionate and empathetic. This might be one of the reasons why she didn't tell McDaniel to hit the road. McDaniel certainly showed interest in her, too much interest. He essentially stalked her, but she was very kind-hearted. So while she turned him down for a date, she never really told him to hit the road in more clear terms. I don't know if that would have saved her, but it probably would have been a good idea. She was creeped out by him, but she wasn't worried. 
When her parents came to visit her, they asked about him because he looked like an oddball. I mean, he is an oddball, but he definitely looks like one too. So they asked about it. She said, that's just Stephen. And she let it go. So I don't know that she actually feared for her safety in respect to McDaniel, but she certainly was a little creeped out by him and definitely didn't want to date him. On June 26, 2011, between 9 p.m. and 12.30 a.m. on June 27th, McDaniel gets a six-foot broomstick or some other handle, and he tapes a camera to it. He takes that stick, holds it up to the second floor where he can look through the window of Gidding's apartment. No one knows why he did it, but my guess is he's trying to get a layout of the apartment, he's trying to get an idea if there's anyone in there, if if Giddings is in there, or if maybe her boyfriend is there, or some friends. He needs to know how he's going to get in, and if there's any threat. Because right after he does this, he goes back to his apartment, and he Googles how he can take care of that burglar bar that she has. She has a bar that blocks her door so no one can come in at night. The fact that she has this bar leads me to believe that she actually was a little nervous living there. I don't know the area, so I don't know if she was in fear because of the area she lived in or if it was the creep that lived next door. Unfortunately, we can't ask her, and unfortunately, her precautions didn't help. We don't know what happened that night. There is never going to be a way to know. The only thing we have is the allocution. We're going to have to trust that McDaniel gave at least a partially accurate account of what happened. I'm going to go ahead and read the allocution because that's all that we have. You can decide for yourself if you believe it or not. Here it is. On Sunday, June 26th, 2011, around 4.30 a.m., I entered Lord Giddings' apartment with a master key I possessed. I was wearing gloves and a mask. I walked to her bedroom door and stood there, observing her sleeping. As I took another step, the floor creaked, and she awoke. She sat up in bed, saw me, and said very calmly, Get the fuck out. I leaped across the bed onto her and grabbed her around the throat. We tumbled out of the bed to the floor, and in her struggle to get away, she moved her legs and lower body under her bed, preventing her from getting away or kicking me. I kept my hands around her throat as we fell to the floor. She reached up and was able to grab the mask and pull it off my head. She said, Stephen, please stop. I continued to strangle her until she stopped moving, and I remained that way, my hands around her throat, for several minutes, possibly as long as 15 minutes. She did not move anymore. I dragged her into her bathroom and placed her in the bathtub, then returned to my apartment. I remained in my apartment mostly on my computer throughout the day, Sunday, June 26th. I returned to Lauren's apartment around midnight Sunday to begin to dismember her with the hacksaw that was recovered from the laundry room maintenance closet. I removed her limbs and head, wrapped them in several black trash bags, separately, and discarded them in the Mercer Law School dumpster across the street from Barrister Hall Apartments. I cut up the mask, gloves, and my shirt and flushed them down my toilet. I wrapped her torso in black plastic trash bags and placed them in the Green Barrister's Hall trash can on Tuesday, June 28th, before daylight. I then cleaned up her bathroom. I never used the refrigerator in apartment one. At no time before Lauren's death did I sexually accost her. At no point after her death did I perform any sexual act of any kind with respect to her remains. 
She was wearing the pink running shorts when she died, and I never removed them. They were found on her torso, just as I had left them. On Monday, I stayed home from bar prep class. Over the next several days, I rarely slept, used my computer extensively, yet still attended bar prep class on Tuesday and Wednesday. I joined the search party Wednesday night into the early hours of Thursday morning, June 30th, still in a dreamlike delusional state in which I believed, at the time, while taking part in the search, that Lauren was still alive and that I had not done what I had done, even searching the law school in a delusional hope of finding Lauren alive and well, as if I had not really killed her. During the weeks leading up to my actions and the days following, as I look back on it now, I can only describe myself as divided in mind, unable to account for how I could have committed these horrible acts, and, at the same time, also be able to carry on a daily routine. It is difficult for me to explain why I killed Lauren and attempted to conceal my deed the way I did. The difficulty in explaining it lies in my own inability to understand it myself. I know that it was very wrong. I am not delusional or without all morals or decency. Yet, I acknowledge that something in my makeup, my psychology, my neuropathy, my own particular pathology, perhaps, must explain it, but it's beyond my reach. Lauren was my friend. Not a day goes by that I do not grieve over her death. I am extremely sorry for what I did to Lauren and her family. I do not expect forgiveness from Lauren's family, and there is no way I can ever deserve it. No words are sufficient to take away their pain. If I could take back what happened, I would do so. If I could restore Lauren to her family, I would. All I can say to Lauren's family and her many friends is, I am very sorry. And that is the only account that we have of what actually happened that night. It was written several years later. So let's go back to the days leading up to and right after the murder to figure out how he was caught. Now, he said he put the body, the torso, in the trash can outside of his apartment building on June 28th. This is true because the trash was going to be picked up on the 30th, which is when the police arrived to for a missing persons report. They just so happened to park in front of the trash can, stopping the trash men from picking up those trash cans. In fact, they waved at the officers as they drove by, leaving the trash there. Had they gotten there just a little bit sooner, they would have taken that torso, and we may never have found the body of Giddings, and McDaniel may still be free. It's interesting and crazy sometimes how things come together to provide justice. Now, that same day, the reporters were there four hours after the body was found, and they were looking for people to interview. Who else do they find except goofy, weird, oddball, sideshow Bob-looking freak, McDaniel? Now, McDaniel couldn't wait to get on TV. I'm going to play a little bit of that interview that he gives on TV now, I want you to listen to him talk before they tell him the body was discovered, when they tell him the body was discovered, and then a little bit after. So here's that clip. And no one's heard from her since. Did you see her hang out with anyone at the time or anything like that? I mean, no, no, no one has seen her since Saturday. I haven't seen anything. I mean, I've always heard noise outside, but it's just people walking by pretty much. And you, uh, she just recently graduated from Mercer? Yeah, she and I, were, we were both JD students. Um, we graduated back in May. 
What kind of person was she? I mean, how did you, what did you see? I mean, she's as nice as can be. I mean, very personable, very much a people person. Do you know anybody that, any enemies she might have had, somebody that might want to hurt her? No, I mean, we're, we don't know where she is. I mean, the only thing we can think is that maybe she went out running and someone snatched her. Because, I mean, we went at, we went over, one of her friends had a key, we went inside and tried to see if there was anything amiss, but, I mean, she had a door jam that was sitting right by it, so there was no sign that anyone broke in. I mean, the door was locked when everyone got here. I mean, we, we just don't know where she is. What about um, in the, like, the parking lot area? I know they've been doing a lot of, I think that's where they have recovered the body or whatever they recovered from there. Body? Um, had you heard, had you seen anything there? Had you seen anything there? I, I mean, we don't know if this is the same person. You know what I mean? Like, they took out a body there earlier. We don't know if it's the same person or not. So that's how we're trying to ask people if they know who lived there. Are you okay, sir? I think I need to sit down. Okay. You've been studying for the bar? Yeah, I... No one had seen her since Saturday because I we all just there's not a whole lot of interaction unless we're doing classes. Right. And she was doing the online version of it. You all so study together though? I no, we were in it's there's two different people that there's two companies that provide it. Captain provides it and Barbary provides it. I signed up with Barbary and I've been doing the lectures that they have in the mornings. She was doing the Kaplan online. So I hardly ever saw her. I, mean, I would see her like go out running, but I. Mean, what time would she go out running? I mean, I don't even know when. Was it I, at night or morning? I, I saw her like midday a, a couple weeks ago. I mean, that was the last time I saw her was coming back from the bar prep on the main campus because we got moved over there for a week or two. But she normally would run. That was the yeah, routine that I mean, she had. She she ran all the time. I mean, she she had a group that she would go running with. I mean, I, I, I don't know anyone that would want to hurt her. She was as nice person as there is. Was she moving soon? Did you know anything about her? Yeah yeah. She she was going to be moving out uh, today. She was supposed to move out today because someone else was going to be moving into her apartment. New law student. I Do you know if she was like, where is she from? Is she uh, from Maryland? Yeah, she's from up in Maryland. Can I just put this on you so we can hear you? Is that all right? Okay. I'm so sorry. And yeah, you can just hold on to that. Thank you. So yeah. she's from Maryland? Yeah, I mean, she, she was from up in Maryland. I mean, all her family was there, as far as I know. I mean, she... What's going on in your mind right now? Like, what are you thinking? Why would anyone do this? She didn't hear anything? No. Didn't see I... Yeah, I just heard something. Maybe I could have helped. <laughs>
It's okay, don't worry. Do you want to sit down for a second? You got something to drink? Do you know if a bunch of her friends are getting together or anything? I mean, that's how I found out that she was missing. We. If you can't tell by the sound, by his voice in the video, go watch it. His facial expressions give him away. In fact, the cameraman, a few days after they had recorded him, thought that maybe he had interviewed the murderer. And he said, quote, Once I realized that he didn't know we'd found a body, you'd see his reaction sort of change, and I zoomed in a bit more on him so I could catch his facial expressions. The whole time we were doing the interview, I never got a feeling something was fishy. I didn't get a weird impression. Usually I pick up a vibe on some people. I didn't know what was going to happen, so I just kept rolling the whole time. This guy actually caught some very important evidence. Now, when he gets taken in to the police department that night for questioning, you can see his demeanor change drastically. So I'm not going to play the whole interrogation. It's about two hours long. And to be honest with you, it is not worth watching. Spare yourself that two hours. You can watch, actually just listen to the clip that I put in here. That should be enough. Because he pretty much just says, I don't know the entire time and gets a barrage of questions from detectives. But here's a few minutes of that interview so you can see how he's totally shifted. got to ask you a few more questions. Okay. Uh, you came down earlier tonight, me and you talked, all right. You don't have any weapons on you, do you? No. That's just you are. What's wrong? You know I'm Detective Patterson, right? Yes. Do you remember? Put your hands up here. You remember us talking yes. earlier tonight, right? Yes. You remember me earlier in the day? Yes. When we came down here and talked a little bit and then we left? Yes. Okay. I need you to know about this girl right here. You know her? Yes. Who is that? Lauren Giddings. Does she live next door to you? Yes. When's the last time you seen her? Two or three weeks ago. Okay. Was you friends with Lauren? Yes. Look at me when you talk to me, son. Okay? Was you friends with her? Yes. Close friends? We were good I mean, y'all were friends, right? Both yes. of y'all were law students. You're studying to be an attorney, right? Yes. What kind of law do you want to go into? Criminal law? Yes. Civil? Is that what you want to do for a living? Yes. Okay. Are you almost finished? Yes. Okay. So you don't have too much more to do, right? No. All right. Are you going to stay here in Macon? I don't know. Did you used to work at the district attorney's office in Macon? Yes. Was you on the... Prosecutor side or the defense side? Prosecutor. So you were on our side. Yes. <laughs> right? You never worked on the other side? No. Did you like it when you were down there? Yes. Uh, got along with everybody? Yes. Okay. And you've lived next to Lauren for a long time? Yes. Okay. Do you know where she's at tonight? No. Hmm? No. Have you ever seen her with that dress on? No. You have no idea where she's at? No. Okay. Uh, yes. Well, 
Are you a knife collector or a knife person? or No. You just like knives? I used to collect swords. I mean, do you know your swords? Yes. I mean, to sell and trade swords? No. But you just bought here and there? Yes. But you wouldn't consider yourself like a sword expert? No. Okay. Because, you know, they have that TV show where they sell stuff, you know, at night yes. on TV. But I don't know what it's called, the knife shop or something like that. Have you ever seen what I'm talking about? I don't know if yes. you have cable TV or not. Alright. What do you need all these weapons for? Are you scared somebody's going to hurt you? No. What do you need all these weapons for? To have. Why? There's a reason why. Were you molested as a child? No. Then why do you need all these weapons? To have. Why? Give me one good reason. Just give me one reason. To have. Why? Does it make you feel important? No. Hmm? Are you a big guy because you got a weapon? No. Do you even know how to use it? Yes. I need you to tell me what you want me to tell her mother. And then I won't ask you another thing. I'm not going to tell her mother that you don't know. Because her mother saw you on the news tonight. And she cried all the way down to Macon. Because you had the balls to get on the news and tell everybody everything. You didn't have no problem talking to the news when they asked you questions. I'm asking you questions. Where's Lauren? I don't know. Yes, you do know. You do know. Telling me that you went through law school. Well, you went through college first, right? Did you graduate from college? Yes. And now you're in law school. Did you graduate from law school? Yes. But you don't fucking remember what they asked you this afternoon? No. Huh? I just don't fucking believe that shit. When was the last time you saw Lauren? Two or three weeks ago. And you have you been on vacation for the last couple of weeks? No. You've been home every night? Yes. Has she been at home every night? I don't know. Has she been on vacation? I think she was away for a while. How long? I don't know. Were you looking for her? No. Let me tell you, even if I didn't talk to my neighbors, I know if my neighbors have been in and out. I hear them come in, I hear them go out, I see them when they walk by my window. I've lived in apartments most of my life. So the fact that you haven't seen her in two or three weeks, that's just odd to me. I'm gonna be honest, it makes me feel like you're not being honest with me. Steven. Now, an interesting thing that I want to point out here about this interrogation is he doesn't ask for an attorney. There's two scenarios possible here. Either one, he came in voluntarily to answer questions about Giddings' murder, in which case he's an idiot. Why would you do that? Why would you voluntarily answer any questions from police about a crime? That makes no sense, and any law student or lawyer should know that. The other scenario is he's in custody and he's being interrogated, in which case any lawyer or law student would know to ask for counsel. So it makes zero sense that he's answering any of these questions at all, especially without a lawyer present. It makes no sense. It boggles my mind, especially for somebody who was supposedly as bright as he was 
and somebody who was the vice president of an organization who deals with constitutional rights. That's an odd thing. But maybe he was just in a delusional state at this time. Maybe he just panicked. It's hard to say what actually happened. But he also probably knew that they already had him. So with that, let's talk a little bit about the evidence they did have against him. Not necessarily at this time, but the evidence they would eventually find. First of all, in his apartment, they find a flash drive that belonged to Laura Giddings that had a bunch of her pictures on it. They don't believe that he took this the night of the murder. Instead, they think that he went into her apartment before the murder to get this flash drive. On his computer, he had searched for, quote, nude Lauren Giddings, end quote. He looked at her Facebook, he looked up different pictures of her, and he always looked at her LinkedIn profile. So as you can see, he was cyber-stalking her, if that's a term. He was definitely keeping an eye on her, not to mention he lived right near her so he could watch her come and go. He pretty much knew her schedule, and he worked with her uh, on school projects, or at least in the... Uh, extracurricular group that they were a part of. McDaniel had a balled up pair of her panties, and they know that because her DNA was on them in his sock drawer. He had a master key in his apartment that could access all the apartments in the complex, so he didn't have to break in anywhere. He could just use the master key that he had. No one knows how he got this master key. There's a rumor in the civil lawsuit that one of the owners of the building had lost their master key. Now, whether McDaniel stole that key and they just thought they lost it or he had found it after they lost it, it's unknown. But he did have a master key. Police also found a large bloody sheet that was in the washing machine in the laundry room. For a guy who was obsessed with committing the perfect murder, why would you leave such damning evidence in a washing machine? But it gets worse. He had a hacksaw blade that had Giddings DNA on it locked in a storage closet. Again, it makes no sense for someone who's planned this murder, or at least who thought about committing the perfect murder for so many years, he really made a lot of poor decisions here. Why would you hide the tool you used to cut up the body at the place where you cut up the body? That hacksaw, they found the packaging for it in McDaniel's apartment next to a bottle of bleach. Again, it just makes no sense. Why would you dispose of body parts but keep the weapon? Well, it's not really a weapon, but keep one of the tools that you used? And then you stored it next to the bleach? You're asking for it here. Finally, they found the torso outside of the apartment based on that stroke of luck. So they knew that she was probably murdered in that building and dismembered in that building. Which means now they're going to use luminol, which is a substance that they spray on blood, and it glows under certain lighting conditions. So now they can search his apartment, and they find out that her bathtub, the test for DNA and blood comes back inconclusive. But guess where they do find blood? Inside of his bathroom. Even though he cleaned it, he didn't clean it all. They also found his hair on her body. So they have more than enough evidence. They really, this is, this is going to go to trial and they're going to get a guilty verdict one way or another. And this is why while he was in custody and the trial was pending, all of this stuff comes slowly. They don't get this all overnight. The internet searches, the 
saw all of this stuff happens over time and it takes time to send a lot of this to the FBI headquarters in Quantico and get the results back. But eventually, I think his lawyer persuaded him that, listen, you don't have a defense here. Uh, we're going to have to plead guilty and the best you can hope for is they will allow you to plead guilty and accept a life sentence. He is eligible for parole in 2041. But neither the defense nor the prosecution believe that's going to happen. Because unlike Canada and America, when you commit a murder like this, you're not walking out. That's not going to happen. Especially probably not in the South. Now that's not all the evidence they have. That is the evidence for the murder. But on August 23rd, 2011, they're searching his apartment again and they find a one gigabyte flash drive. This flash drive didn't belong to Giddings. Instead, this was McDaniel's flash drive that was full of child pornography. Not just nude kids, nude boys, nude girls, and nude adults performing sexual acts with children. This brings a whole slew of new charges against McDaniel. Now, eventually, those charges are dropped when he pleads guilty to murder, because I think the prosecution agrees they'll drop those charges because they know he's going to plead guilty to murder. He's not going to get out. So they don't really need to do that. And that's the story of Stephen Mark McDaniel. He will be serving a life sentence unless he is the luckiest guy in the world and somehow gets paroled in 2041. It's highly unlikely. And now there is a memorial bench in Washington Park in Macon City dedicated to the memory of Lauren Giddings. When they were talking about putting up this monument, there was some resistance to it. The city council was worried that this would open up the gates to anyone being murdered having a monument put up in their name. For her, they made an exception, and it was an 11-0 to vote, so it was easily passed, and that's how she's going to be remembered. I want to thank you for tuning in to The Guilty Podcast. I want you to stay tuned for part two, where we talk to David about the mentality of McDaniel. Now, we'll probably discuss stalking. Even though there's not a lot of information on McDaniel's stalking, he was obsessed with Giddings. There's no question about that. So we're going to talk about obsession, we're going to talk about stalking, and then we're going to try to figure out if we can put a why to this who, what, when, and where. So stay tuned for that. If you enjoyed the podcast again, please leave a review on iTunes. You can find me at guilty underscore podcast on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook at guilty podcast. You can also email me at guilty podcast at yahoo.com. Have a great day. Stay safe.